Thank you, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. Top of the morning to you, and the balance of the day to myself. I've been hearing a lot more this year than normal about the strange disconnect between the phrase that we hear a lot this weekend. A three-word phrase that most of us, maybe we don't use, but we hear a lot. Happy Memorial Day. I read something that my eldest daughter-in-law, see if my, my phone let me keep it. Yeah, it did. An article that she posted from the Washington Post by a veteran. So relax, okay? There's, this is not going to be a, a, a beating around the head and neck, okay? A friend reminded me that plenty of people use the weekend the way it was designed to pause and remember the men and women who paid the price of our freedom and then go on about enjoying those freedoms. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the day that you have tomorrow. No one would say that we should all go to the cemetery and spend all day on a lawn chair remembering those that have given their lives for our country. But we should stop and remind ourselves that the reason we can have the picnic, the reason we can have the, the kite flying with our kids, the reason that we can do all of those things without fear is because of those men and women who gave their lives so we could have our freedoms. I've been with you long enough now. Seems like forever, doesn't it? I've been, with you, <laughs> I've been with you long enough now that I remember several years ago, I was able to get on the internet and find the exact number of troops that had died in the previous year. And if you remember, we had a series of flags, three flags high, little, little flags this size, all the way around our sanctuary. Today, if I were to do the same thing, it would take that space right over there. And unfortunately, sadly, some of them lost their lives by their own hands. But I do want us to remember not just those who have died for whom this is their family's first Memorial Day, but all of those. And remember the price that they paid. And as Greg said so beautifully at the beginning of the service, to remind ourselves that as Christians, we of all people should understand the mixture of sadness, thankfulness, and joy on a weekend like this. Because on a regular basis, we come to this table and we take a piece of bread and a little glass of juice and it reminds us of a death. You realize that, that our ordinances are all about death, don't you? Do you ever stop and think about that? Baptism. Why are we as Baptists so obsessed with dipping people in the water? Because it represents a death, a burial. And the cup reminds us of death. But it also fills us with joy because that death brought us life. So we of all people should be able, if we know someone who has lost a military member, a family member, a friend, to be able to offer them our condolences and our comfort. And at the same time, to thankfully enjoy the day, both this afternoon as we meet together for our picnic time, and then tomorrow as we remember and enjoy the day. So may we be those kinds of people.
Take your Bible, if you will, and open them with me to Matthew chapter 28. This now is the 24th message from the book of Matthew over a course of two periods of three months, and we've had 26 small group Bible studies on, the te- on Matthew, so 50 times in the last 18 months, over a course of six months of study, we have looked at Matthew's gospel. From the very beginning, when it was announced that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, until today, when he says, and lo, I will be with you always. What a book. And it's a little reminder to me and to share with you that if you are not involved in small group Bible study, let me encourage you. Because if you only come to worship, you only get half the, half the picture. Usually, we don't study the same passage in Bible study that we do in here. Today we are because it's such a seminal passage. It's so important to us going forward, especially what we're going to be doing beginning next week as we go into the book of Acts. In Bible study, we're going to be in the Psalms for a few months. And, uh, and it's not that I don't believe in preaching on the Psalms, but I wanted to get us into Acts and be thinking about what happened as a result of Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So we're going to study the first half of the book of Acts during the summer, take three months somewhere else, and then next year around Christmas time, or the end of this year during Christmas time, and then the next year finish up the book of Acts. And so we look forward to being together with that process. We invite you to join us. I read a article in preparation for today, and it asked this question that I put at the very beginning of your outline, which is on the back of the yellow sheet. The front side is the prayer request for this week. The back side, if you want to take notes or keep score or see how many times I get off track or something like that, you can do that on that yellow sheet. At least you won't, you know, get too distracted, I hope. About what punctuation mark, if you had to describe Easter with no words, just a punctuation mark, what mark would you use? The author of the article had asked his class that in a seminary, and some of the students said a comma because it was, it was a pause that then led on to something else. Some people said it's a period. It is finished, period. The work is done, full stop. Some people said a question mark for lost people. What does all this mean? Maybe even for some of us. What does it mean that Jesus is alive? We, we had to wrestle with a tough question this morning in my Bible study group about How does the resurrection of Jesus impact every area of our lives? And I won't go into that right now. I hope you had that discussion too in some of your Bible study groups. But the author said, and I agree, that if I had to choose one punctuation mark, I would put an exclamation point. Because it says, hallelujah, now we can start living. We don't have to fight the curse of constantly going back to the temple, back to the sacrifice, one more killed lamb, one more sacrificed sheep, one more goat on the altar. We have the price paid once and for all, and we can go forward. And all of our friends, and if you are here today and you are not yet a follower of Christ, let me help you understand that in spite of all of the trappings that we often put around Christianity, in spite of all of the doctrine and theology we wrap around it, at its very core, it's about someone who died to pay my penalty so that I could live. If you ever saw A Tale of Two Cities, the end of The Tale of Two Cities is built upon the story of the resurrection. As that man gave his life so that someone else could live. Someone who was his enemy could live. That's the story of the resurrection. But as I sat there and looked at my keyboard as I was typing out 
the notes for today's message. And yes, I always have notes. I just never bring them with me. Sometimes you probably wish I did. Um, I also noticed another set of marks on my keyboard. They're not really punctuation marks, but they're on my keyboard, so I let them count. And those are the, arrow, the cursor arrows, the up arrow, the down arrow, the left arrow, the right arrow. And I thought, you know what? That's a great way to describe this passage. And so if you'll forgive me using kind of a mechanical sort of, of, of device to help us look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20, I'd like to talk about those four arrows that are all a part of Operation Emmanuel, God with us. And we begin where Matthew begins, with the inward arrow. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Matthew chapter 28. It says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What a great introduction to this last little paragraph. In Bible studies, we call it a pericope. I have no idea why, but that's what they call them. A story or a section, a pericope. This little paragraph, and we begin with the inward arrow, looking at the heart of the disciples and the condition they were in. And we can ask several quick why questions. Why Galilee and why on a mountain? Because big things happen on mountains. Not just in Jesus' day, but even in the Old Testament. Moses goes up on a mountain to take the Ten Commandments. Josh, uh, Elijah faces the prophets of Baal on a mountain. Mountains, mountains everywhere. We get to Jesus, he goes up on a mountain to give the great sermon on the mount. He's transfigured on a mountain. And now he takes them to Galilee, which if you remember at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, is called Galilee of the Gentiles. Because it was a mixed race there. There was a Gentile population in Galilee. And Galilee was the place where Judaism met the Gentile world. To the east, desert. To the south, desert. To the west, the Mediterranean. To the north, the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. And so Jesus calls them there almost as a precursor saying, now this is what's going to happen. We've left Jerusalem behind. Now we're heading out to a new place. Why 11? That's an odd number. 11. 11 is a clunky number. 11 is an odd number. Number 11 is a prime number. One of those numbers you can't divide anything into. You can't split 11 into anything. You can't split it into three groups of four, that's 12. You can't split it into two groups of five, that's 10. You, you, you can't divide 11 into anything. Why 11? You say, well, pastor, come on, you know why 11? Because of Judas Iscariot, he committed suicide. Well, I know that. But why didn't Jesus start by saying, before I begin, fellas, I'd like to introduce you to Matthias. I'm going to bring him in so that the 12 are rounded out again and we got a group. They eventually do that. But Jesus leaves them 11. And gives them the commission. Why? Maybe to remind us that we aren't always perfect, but God can still use us. Sometimes we feel 11-ish. We're not really 12-ish. We're kind of 11-ish, and that's okay. Hmm. Why worshiped? Why doubted? Well, we talked about in our Bible study group, you, you tend to worship anytime you see something bigger than yourself. But they also doubted. Now, that word doubted, as you probably know, some of you know, is not like they, their faith wavered so much as they were just hesitant. I see it's Jesus. I know it's him. I recognize him. I, I, I saw him die. I know he's alive now, but I'm just not real sure I'm ready to make a commitment yet. Oh, my goodness. Does that not describe us so often? I mean, come on. Can we just be honest for a minute? As Joan Rivers used to say, can we talk? 
Can we just be honest for a minute and talk about how many times we say, I know what he says is true. I'm just not sure I'm ready to step out into the dark. Step out into the uncertainty. Step out into the unknown. He may know, but I sure don't. And so the inward arrow looks at who we are and the doubt and the fear and the uncertainty that we feel so often, even as we are trying to faithfully follow Christ. And I stand before you telling you that I am exactly one of a company with you in that regard. All of us deal with fear and hesitation. And I believe, and I hope you'll allow me to say this, I believe that a lot of why Jesus worded the Great Commission the way he did was for that very reason. See, Matthew didn't have to tell us that. You ever stop and realize how many things the Bible tells us that it didn't really have to tell us? That's why I could never write a novel. I would do good to write a good short story because novels have all kinds of other things in them that, that just, they just kind of add color to the story. They're not really essential to the story, but they're just there. And you're kind of glad they are. It'd be kind of dry if it weren't. But Matthew didn't have to tell us that some of them doubted. He could have said they fell at his feet and worshiped him. And then he said, gave him the Great Commission. But he said, no, some of them were hesitant. So that I can stand in front of you and say, aren't you glad you're not the only one that hesitates sometimes? Huh? I mean, really. Aren't you glad to know that those 11 men that walked with Jesus every day for three years plus still had doubts? So let's start with the inward arrow. But then Jesus immediately moves us with his words to what I'm going to call the upward arrow, and that's looking up to him. The upward arrow happens in verse 18. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And to be honest with you, beloved, to me, this is the most important verse in the commission. Everything else is downhill from here. Jesus establishes who he is and what his role is in their life going forward from this point. He says, all authority has been given to me. Has been given. By whom? By the Father. At what point? We talked about that in our Bible study group this morning. At the point of his being resurrected, being vindicated, being authorized by the Father to now have rule and authority over all of creation. All authority belongs to him, both in heaven and on earth. Now, what does that tell you? I'll tell you what it tells me. It tells me that Christ is sovereign over everything that happens in my life. He doesn't make it happen, but he is still ruling over everything that happens. We often fall into that trap. We start talking about God's sovereignty. Well, how can God blame me? If he's sovereign, it's his fault that it happened. Well, it's kind of like when your dad gives you something to do or your mom or teacher school and things don't go bad and Teacher says, well, I guess we're going to have to fix this. And he said, well, did you know? Yeah, I knew this was going to happen. Well, why would you let me do it? Or why would you make me do it? I didn't make you do it. I let you do it. Because I wanted you to learn from it. But I'm still in charge. And Jesus' sovereignty gives him authority over everything that goes on in our lives. Everything that can happen, we could eventually come back around to him and his rule and his reign. And if we understand that truth, if we truly can believe that truth, everything else falls into place. So I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, but let's look at what we do based on that authority. The outward arrow. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. This is the outward arrow. 
Got the inward arrow, the upward arrow, now the outward arrow that says, go and make disciples. Not make in the sense of, of force people, but make in the sense of form. Let me use you as my tool to form them, to shape them into my followers. As one person in my group said this morning, not to make converts, but to make disciples. A convert is someone who believes the truth. A disciple is someone who follows the truth. And so Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples. Now, I've got I've to just play with this for just a second, so I hope you'll forgive me. You know me in my grammar talks, okay? Technically, there are two imperative verbs in this phrase. Go and make. Go and form. Okay. But literally, literarily, they have very different functions. I can give you an example I hope will make it very clear to you. If I were to say to you, let me pick on somebody I can see. Ray Brewer. If I were to say, hey, Ray, would you mind going by Walmart on your way to the picnic this afternoon and pick up two gallons of tea for us? Because I forgot to bring the tea. So if you don't mind, would you go by Walmart and get us two gallons of unsweet tea and bring it out to Canarsie Park? He goes, sure, I'll be glad to do that for you. Now, I've technically asked him to do two things, go to Walmart and buy two gallons. But the going is functional. What I need is the tea. I need the gallon jugs filled with chemicals that somehow or another taste like iced tea. I don't know what all that is in those jugs, but there's something in there that makes me scared. Because six weeks later, you're still drinking it. It's like, really, are you kidding me? Anyway, the going is a functional task that happens in order for the real command to ha- or the real request to be fulfilled. So Jesus says, and that's why a lot of translations will, will turn it into a participle, as you are going, or in the process of going, or by going, or in going, make disciples, make followers of mine. And what we tend to do is we tend to either overemphasize the going or we underemphasize the going. And without going into all that right now, ha, going into all that right now, let me just take us right in the middle line by saying something very, very simple. We all know what a commission is. I don't mean a commission when you sell a house or make a sale. I'm talking about a commission, say, in the military. Part of the swearing-in ceremony when you go into the military is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. You take an oath, and as an officer, you take an oath that you will lead the troops under you to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I got news for you. That doesn't happen sitting in your living room watching TV. Implied in that oath is, I will go wherever you send me to perform the task that I've been commissioned to perform, right? Can you be a commissioned officer and just lie around in bed all day long? No, you've got to be out there doing the task. And so when Jesus says go, or as you are going, or in the process of going, there is a, there is a proactivity to that. There is a forethought to that. My latest and greatest place of evangelism these days, or, or at least sharing and, and, and sowing seeds, is now Walmart. For the longest time, it was the old McDonald's, and then they moved McDonald's out there, and I don't really care for that new McDonald's, and tried Burger King for a while. That didn't work. But Walmart is a great place. And listen, I am no evangelical giant. If I were, there'd be people coming down the aisle every Sunday morning saying, Pastor Steve led me to Christ this past week. I'm just out there sowing seeds just like you. But you go to Walmart, and you see somebody that is a cashier on aisle seven who used to be part of our youth group and now comes periodically every now and then. And you said, well, I'm going to get on her aisle so I can talk to her as I check out. 
my groceries are my stuff. Or there's a young stock boy, and you recognize him because he was in vacation Bible school when he was younger. And say, aren't you Billy Jones? Didn't you go to vacation Bible school? Yeah, you're Pastor Steve. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Billy, by the way, where, where is the canned tuna fish? I know where the canned tuna fish is. But I asked Billy, hey, Billy, where's the canned tuna fish? Well, it's right over here on aisle seven. I'll show you. He takes me over to aisle seven. Okay, great. Thanks, Billy. Hey, good talking to you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. 26 conversations later, hey, Billy, what are you doing about church these days? Because by that time, we built a relationship. And I've asked him about everything from sardines to coffee filters to, 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 to latex gloves, you know, every kind of thing imaginable. You see... It's not about memorizing an outline. It's not about filling in a form. It's not about knowing all the right Bible verses. Ultimately, at its core, sharing, doing the work of being the tool of Christ to make disciples is telling people what Jesus has done for you. Telling people what Jesus means in your life. And beloved, I believe the number one reason why we do not share as readily as we do is because we have forgotten that in the end, it's all about Christ and not about us. And if we truly want to be obedient to the Great Commission, I think all of us do. We all want to be better followers of Christ. We all want to be more obedient to Him. We don't want to walk around feeling guilty. Just remind yourself, it's not about you. And it's not about me. Christ already knows who's going to receive Him. Christ has already, in His knowledge and in His selection, has those that will be His children. And He says, all I want you to do is go out and start talking because you don't know who they are. So go talk to everybody. And the ones that I know are going to become Christians, guess what? They'll respond. Maybe not respond to you. They may respond to somebody else down the road, but they will respond. All I'm asking you to do is just go talk about what Jesus has done for you. And then the downward arrow that says, lo, or behold, or see, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. You will never go alone. You'll never do this by yourself. You will always have me with you. You'll always go in my authority. 1980, 79, 80, I don't remember which now. Had to have been 80, I guess. I was hired by the United States Census Bureau. You remember, I think they still do it, but now they all do it online. Remember when you used to have those, those more in-depth surveys, census surveys, like everybody got the short version. And then about one out of every hundred people would get a longer version. And what they would do is they would hire young people like me in their late teens, early 20s to go out and, and, and I had 300 people and I had six weeks to talk to those 300 homes and do, go through the questionnaire, about 10 minutes. And I would go up and, and believe me, I lived on the southwest side of Atlanta. Think North St. Louis. I lived on the southwest side of Atlanta, and my dad was a little nervous about some of those doors I had to knock on. Didn't bother me one bit. You know why? I was there for the United States Census Bureau. I wasn't there on my own authority. I wasn't there trying to sell them something. The Bureau had sent me. The United States Census Bureau had sent me to your home to ask you these questions in an effort to learn more about the American people. Would you take 10 minutes and allow me to ask you these questions? Sure. Oh, that's fine. Or... I won't say some of the other things I heard, but it was like, no, you're not welcome. Get off my porch. Thank you very much. Did not even think about it one more minute. You know why? Because it wasn't about me. You see, I could go with authority because it wasn't my authority. And if somebody said no, it wasn't my fault. I just marked unresponsive. I still got paid. 
I didn't get paid for getting filled out. I, get, I got paid to get, to get a response. And if the response was no, I still got paid. And in the same way, Jesus Christ sends us with his authority, walking side by side with us. All I want you to do is just tell people what Jesus has done in your life. Tell them how he makes a difference in their lives. And I will make the decision about how they respond. Just do what I'm asking you to do. I don't have a whole lot more to say to you this morning. Because Jesus has said it all right here. You see, this great commission, this frightening, terrifying command, the thing that makes our stomach churn every time somebody comes up and says, well, you go to church, don't you? We go, oh my gosh, here we go. This command is encapsulated in two very, very comforting statements. I have all authority. I have authority over that person. I have authority over your life. I have authority over the circumstances in which you find yourself. I have authority over the fact that he asked you that question at work in a place where you're not supposed to discuss religion. I knew that. Do you think I got surprised by that? I knew that. I have all authority, Jesus says. And I'm sitting right by you at your desk or at, in the coffee room, in the coffee place or wherever you are. I'm with you. So, answer the question. Answer the question. All authority has been given to me, upward arrow. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. Downward arrow, I will be with you. I will not sit up on some throne in heaven. I'll be right by your side. So that then impacts again the inward arrow. We're able to go out with confidence, with victory, knowing that the victory is not ours. It is his. Heard a great story. Read, I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. I read it. Great story. I'm sorry I don't remember the young man's name. I should have gone back and looked one more time. But it was a young man that was fighting the Revolutionary War. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. War is always horrible, but, well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to try to compare. Terrible. And he said, as I was going across the field, I looked to my left, and I saw General Washington himself Within 100 meters of me, 100 yards of me, he said. Within 100 yards of me, I saw General Washington on his horse, riding through a million deaths. And when I realized what he was willing to risk, I no longer thought, even thought about myself. You see, when we put our eyes on Christ... When we see all that he has done for us, when we see the thousand million deaths that he died, every sin that we've ever committed, he paid the price for that. He took all that Satan could throw at him and came out victorious from the grave, living to never die again. And he says, all I want you to do is go in my authority. I will go with you. Just tell them what I've done for you. You say, I don't even think about me anymore. It's, it's not really about me. It's just all about what he has done. You see, this is what's important. So give me two more minutes of your attention. Well, maybe three. Okay, five. This is very important. Not because I'm saying it, but because this is going to be the linchpin of where we're going to be for probably the next close to 18 months in our life as a church family. Jesus did not come to earth 
to start a 501c3 corporation. Jesus did not come to earth to start an institution, to create an organization. Jesus Christ came to start a movement. A movement of people. If you're under the age of 30, think flash mob. If you're over the age of 30, you have no idea what that is. If you're over the age of 50, remember the Jesus movement in the 70s. Whether you were a part of it or thought it was the worst thing since, there was something unique about those teenagers and young adults in the 1970s that fell in love with Jesus. They were wearing those maxi skirts. They mostly didn't have any shoes on, and they were singing, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Remember that song? It even sounds 70s. Jesus is the answer for the world today. It just sounds like I want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, doesn't it? Jesus is the way. Yeah, you can sing the rest of it. It was a movement. There was no organization. There were no leaders. There were nobody out there organizing. Now, you go this block and you go down this street. They just, they were out there everywhere. Those of you that remember the Asbury Revival, remember those young students going out from Asbury College and Seminary, and they just go, any church you would listen to them. Nobody assigned them. Well, you go down this road or you go to that town. They just started going. That's what Jesus came to start was a movement of people that were so enamored that Jesus became sneezable. You know what I mean when I say sneezable, don't you? You know how you, you know how a sneeze works? It starts deep down inside of it and you just kind of feel it coming. And you try to hold it back and you just can't. Next thing you know, and there it goes. It just spreads everywhere. Well, think about a germ that can heal instead of making sick. Think about a germ that brings life instead of death. Think about a gospel that is so real that it's inside of us and it comes out of us and it sneezes out of every sentence that we speak, every thought that we have, every action that we take, and it sneezes out to a lost world. And next thing you know, they start sneezing too because they've caught it. I think that we don't say the word Jesus enough. I don't think we talk about Jesus enough. Now, you say, well, of course we do, Pastor. No, we talk about Christ. We talk about the Lord. We talk about our Savior. We talk about salvation. We talk about God the Father. We talk about the Holy Spirit. I want to challenge you this week to consciously try and say the name of Jesus at least 10 times to someone every day for the next week. Okay, five. Five times. Just say the name of Jesus. I don't mean Jesus, 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 Jesus. No, I don't mean like that. So, you know, because I'm a follower of Jesus, this is what I think about that. Or, you know, when Jesus came into my life, he did this. Because, you see, people can identify with that because that's not some kind of structure. It's like, well, at my church, we talk about so-and-so. They're going to go, there you go. I don't even want to hear it. Well, my pastor said, no, no, just another man standing up talking. Jesus has done this for me. Jesus has changed my life. Jesus is working in me. It becomes a movement of people that are excited about what Jesus is doing in their lives, and they want other people to share in that. Last illustration, we're going to pray. How many of you, now this is honest, I'm not, I'm, I'm not I'm, see, I've closed my Bible, I've pushed everything out of the way. How many of you are Mac users? If you're a Mac user, raise your hand, nice and high. All right, come on, All right, there you go, raise going, okay, I got to admit, I'm a Mac user. Come on, put your hands in the air. If you're a Mac user, I want to see your hands. All right. I'm tempted to make you stand up, but I won't. Okay. How many of you can ever remember a time when Apple said to you, if you recommend a Mac to somebody else and they buy one, we'll give you 10% off your next, your next purchase? Does Apple do that kind of thing? I never remember ever reading an ad, an ad campaign where Apple said, we'll give you a discount if you can get someone else to buy a Mac. Because you know what the phrase is, once you go Mac, you'll never go back. 
The product is so good that they know that if they make the best product they can, they won't have to give you an incentive to tell other people. This man is pouring his heart, soul, mind, and strength and some of his own dollars into trying to help our church get Mac, get into Mac. He says, now, Brother Steve, you understand, Pastor, if we decide to use, what's that new thing, with that thing, Pro, Pro Planner? Pro Presenter. If we decide to use Pro Presenter, it really works better on a Mac. You know, if you want to do this program that will help church members be able to use their phone to be able to find, like, names and phone numbers of church members and stuff like that, it really works best if we do it on a Mac. You know, you wouldn't be having that problem with that glitch on your computer if you had a Mac. Now, you laugh because you've heard the very same things. People who are Mac users are obsessed. They are crazy about Macs. And no one has ever had to say, we'll give you $50 if you'll get to tell somebody else about a Mac. They want their product. Now, you say, okay, I get your point. Thank you. Now, can we pray and go on, get on to other things? Yeah, we will. But do you really understand? Why are we insisting, now, Lord, if I'm going to do this, I expect something back on it. Says, are you kidding me? After all I have given you, all I have done, I have given you the best thing in life or eternity. All I want you to do is just, whenever you get a chance, just bring it up. We want the whole world to know Jesus. Now, we know they won't all. I'll never forget, one of the curses of the 70s was that we believed we were going to bring America to Christ. Is God going to bring America, every American, to salvation? Could he? Will they? If Matthew 7 is correct, they won't, because Jesus said, wide is the path, and many are the ones that follow it to salvation, right? Which path is the wide path that many follow? Destruction. How many follow the path of life? Few. So knowing that, we got to go find them. we got to go find who the few are. And so we start telling everybody we know, because we're not sure which ones are the few. And we do it on his authority, knowing he is with us, and we do it with joy. And we just sneeze those germs, those Jesus germs, out all over everybody we can find, hoping somebody will catch the bug. So with that, let's start a movement in Waterloo. Let's don't form more hierarchies and create more classes and do more things that take time and money and energy keeping us in this little place. I think it was you, Kristen, made the comment that part of Part of Jesus saying go was don't stay in the salt shaker. Go, go. We'll get to Acts in a few weeks, and you'll see what happened when they didn't go. That's your cook to stay with me for the next few weeks. But for now, in his authority, with his presence, let's go sneeze Jesus all over our world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for the words of your son who came to start a people movement, who came to start an indigenous people movement that by your power and with your presence and on your authority, we can go. And in the process of going proactively, prayerfully, as we go, we can be used by you to shape people into becoming not just converts, but disciples. Link them in to a family through baptism. Help them to learn not just facts, but to obey what we, what we believe, what they believe, what you teach us from your Lord.
So Father, in this moment, you begin to bring people's minds, or faces to our minds. You begin to bring people to our thoughts. People that we know do not know Christ, that we've never had a chance to sneeze Jesus onto. And right in this moment, even as I pray this prayer, you're bringing people's faces into minds and hearts. Maybe a family member that we were scared. They get mad at us and never speak to us again. And we've been reminded today, it's not our authority. We're using it as your authority. Maybe a co-worker that could get us fired just for talking about Jesus. And we've trusted ourselves more than we trusted you. Father, in these moments with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, May we commit ourselves, may we surrender ourselves to obeying the commission and in going be used by you to make disciples. For it's in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom, the kingdom that he is building and the movement that he is continuing to empower, we pray.